Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. On the night of April the 14th, Prince performed two concerts at the Fox Theatre in Atlanta, Georgia, just one week after postponing his earlier scheduled shows due to a mysterious illness. On stage that evening, his purple piano stood bathed in light. Behind it was a beautiful piece of artwork of Prince with a third eye, symbolising his state of enlightenment and spiritual wisdom. During the song Controversy, Prince recited the Lord's Prayer and told the audience how much he loved God. At the end of the show, for his final encore, he would give an electrifying performance of Purple Rain one last time. Seven days later, Prince's lifeless body would be discovered in an elevator at his Paisley Park estate by his friend Kirk Johnson. Join us on a supernatural journey as we tour the legendary musical history and life of Prince, explore his spiritual evolution and investigate his untimely backstage exit to the afterlife. This is Death by Misadventure. Nelson and Matty Della Shaw met in 1956 at a show in Minneapolis. They were both jazz musicians, her a singer and him a keyboardist. Matty would later become a singer in Nelson's band, the Prince Rogers Trio. The two fell in love and got married in 1957. Just one year later, the young newlyweds welcomed Prince Rogers Nelson on June the 7th 1958, at Mount Sinai Hospital in Minneapolis. Prince's little sister, Tyka, was born on May 18th, two years later. Prince was a fragile child and suffered from epileptic seizures, but one day walked up to his mother and told her he wouldn't be sick anymore. When she asked him how he knew, he replied, because an angel told me so. Having two musicians for parents, meant that Prince and Tycho were always immersed in music. But Prince's home life was volatile, and his parents' conversations would deteriorate into daily shouting matches. To heal the trauma and pain from his dysfunctional environment, he would use music and his dad's piano as a safe haven from all the drama. Prince taught himself to play the piano by learning TV themes. He honed his ear studying the choir in his church and listening to the local radio in Minneapolis. His hometown was special because it had an even mix of soul, funk and pop on its airwaves. Prince started writing music when he was about seven years old. Funk Machine was his first tune, a nod to his heroes James Brown and Sly Stone. At school, he was usually found in the music room, woodshedding on guitar. However, Prince's home would soon splinter when he was only eight years old when his parents divorced. Matty remarried quickly to Hayward Baker, with whom Prince had a rocky relationship. Fortunately, 
His new stepfather did support his creativity and took Prince to see James Brown when he was 10. The hardest working man in show business left a profound impression on him because of his soulful talent and super tight control on his band. Still, Prince missed his father and would soon move back in with him, but was kicked out again at the age of 12 when his dad caught him at home in bed with a girl. Prince had no steady place to live after leaving his dad's. He was constantly moving during his childhood, changing addresses more than 30 times and bouncing between his parents and other relatives' homes. Soon thereafter, fate stepped in to lend a hand when Prince met Andre Simone in seventh grade. The two became fast friends and shared a passion for music. Later, the two young boys were surprised to find out that Prince's father, John, played in a band with Andre's father growing up. After running away from his mother's home, Prince moved in with Andre's family so they could play music together full-time. Andre had five siblings, so space was tight, but Prince was able to find his own space in the basement. It was his lair, where he could write songs and celebrate his sexuality. That basement would also become the rehearsal space for his band. Grand Central consisted of Andre Anderson, Simone, Charles Smith and Terry Jackson. The band played cover songs and originals. They did everything from Earth, Wind and Fire to War and Mandrill, Jimi Hendrix, Billy Preston, you name it. The band evolved and Prince quickly gained the ability to play all the tracks, slowly becoming a one-man production machine. He was ready to become a superstar. Prince's first album, For You, was recorded at the plant in Sausalito and released in 1978. Prince wrote, arranged, and played all the instruments on the record except for one song. For his second album, Prince put together a new band and hit the road in 1979. His musical lineup was funky and overtly sexy and included bandmates Andre Simone on bass, Gail Chapman and Dr. Funk on keys, Des Dickerson playing guitar, and Bobby Z on the drums. Warner Brothers was initially concerned whether or not the record would be a hit, but in October 1979, they released the album Prince, and it shot to number 22 on the Billboard 200 and was soon certified platinum. It also contained two R&B hits, Why You Wanna Treat Me So Bad and I Wanna Be Your Lover, which sold over a million copies and reached number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one for two weeks on the Hot Soul Singles Chart. In 1981, Prince formed a side project called The Time. The band released four albums between 1981 and 1990, with Prince writing and performing most of the instrumentation and backing vocals, with lead vocals by Morris Day. In late 1982, Prince released a double album, 1999, which sold over 3 million copies. The title Party Jam track, 1999, was written to bring attention to the Cold War and tap into how humanity might be feeling at the moment. He wrote the famous hook, They say 2000 party over, oops, out of time. So tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. In a rare interview in 1999, 
Prince spoke with Larry King on CNN and explained the meaning behind the popular song. He said he was sitting with his bandmates watching a special on 1999, and they were speculating on what the future held. He found it ironic how everyone around him, who he thought was optimistic, were actually concerned about the political climate they were living in. He went on to state, He knew there was going to be rough times for the earth, and he just wanted to write a song that gave people hope and a more positive outlook on life. In the early 1980s, Prince asked his manager, Bob Cavallo, to score a deal for him to star in a major motion picture. This resulted in the hit film Purple Rain, which starred Prince and Apollonia Cotero. The movie was loosely based on Prince's life and included a number one soundtrack that went on to sell 13 million copies in the U.S. The film Purple Rain won Prince and Oscar for Best Original Song. The album also spawned several number one hit songs, including When Doves Cry and Let's Go Crazy. But not everyone was a fan of Prince's music. In fact, after Vice President Al Gore's wife, Tipper, heard her 11-year-old daughter, Corinna, listening to Prince's song, Darling Nikki, which gained wide notoriety for its sexual lyrics and a reference to masturbation. She founded the Parents Music Resource Center. The center advocated the mandatory use of a warning label, parental advisory, explicit lyrics, on the covers of records that have been judged to contain language or lyrical content unsuitable for minors. The recording industry later voluntarily complied with this request, which of course made Prince's music even more desirable to listen to. In 1986, his album, Parade, hit number three on the Billboard charts and included the number one song, Kiss. The album served as the soundtrack to his second film, Under the Cherry Moon, but the film flopped. He soon joined forces with drummer Sheila E., and the Sign of the Times album was released on March of 1987. The record included his duet with Sheena Easton, You've Got the Look, Once again, Prince released a film along with the album, and although the reviews were better than Under the Cherry Moon, it was not financially successful. By 1991, Sheila E. had left the band, and Prince had debuted a new band, The New Power Generation, and in 1992 released his 12th album. It bared only an unpronounced symbol on the cover, later copyrighted as Love Symbol No. 2, as its title. Prince, feeling confined by his label deal, had decided to change his name to a glyph. It defied phonetics and Warner Brothers. He wanted the love symbol to fuse the astrologically inspired Mars male and Venus female symbols, and the artist formerly known as Prince was born. From the beginning, Prince had a roadmap for the symbol. It was a fuck you gesture to his record label, but it also held a much deeper meaning for the Purple Highness. The idea to create the symbol supposedly entered his consciousness during meditation, according to a report by The Independent. Given that, 
and the fact that he named it the love symbol, it's clear that it had a much deeper meaning to Prince than a simple negotiating tool. On February 8, 2004, Prince appeared at the 46th Annual Grammy Awards with Beyonce. One month later, Prince was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and there was nothing the singer couldn't do. He was the rare artist that could do everything well, sing, dance, write, and arrange songs, produce music, and lead a band. Once he and Warner Brothers parted ways in 1996, Prince once again started experimenting with music. He released albums not only on traditional labels, but also exclusively via his website, a 1-800 number, with concert tickets and along with the Daily Mail newspaper. As a result, many of his late 90s and early thousands releases can feel like hidden treasures, difficult to find unless you bought them originally or can find them in a used record store. Throughout Prince's nearly 40-year musical career, he surrounded himself with a collection of beautiful muses and collaborators. Prince's astrology chart tells an interesting tale of a powerful yet troubled soul. He was born under the light-hearted zodiac sign of Gemini with a Scorpio rising. Where Gemini is curious and fluid, Scorpio is intense and mysterious. During his lifetime, he had to sail through troubled waters in order to gain wisdom and a deeper spiritual understanding about life. He used these experiences to write some of the most memorable songs to create the soundtrack to our lives. His desires were fueled by the ladies in his life. The first woman, his mother, who he felt abandoned him as a child, would dramatically color his romantic relationships later in life. His path soon crossed with Sheila E., a Sagittarius, when her father and the band Santana was recording at the record plant in Sausalito next to him. Shortly after, Sheila E. attended one of Prince's shows and introduced herself backstage. However, he already knew who she was because she had been doing session work with Herbie Hancock and George Duke. After the show, Prince told her that he and his bassist Andre were just fighting about which one of them would be the first to be her husband. He also prophetically vowed that one day she would join his band. The two struck up a friendship and soon began collaborating musically during the Purple Rain recording sessions. Prince took her under his wing, and she provided vocals on Erotic City's B-side to the single Let's Go Crazy. Still, Sheila E. would become a successful artist in her own right, and she scored several hits including The Glamorous Life and The Bell of St. Mark. The relationship eventually took a romantic turn after she joined the tour. Together, Sheila E. and Prince had all the makings of a perfect relationship. An unbreakable bond of love and friendship, unmatched talent, striking looks, fame, and fortune. At one point, Sheila E. and Prince decided to take things to the next level. In her memoir, The Beat of My Own Drum, she wrote how he popped the question live on stage, and she gladly accepted. For the remainder of the year, the couple lived in romantic bliss. But like any other relationship, Prince and Sheila E. faced numerous ups and downs. 
As time passed, the couple grew apart due to creative differences and her jealousy over all the females that threw themselves at Prince on a daily basis. Sheila E. knew towards the end of the Love Sexy tour that it was the beginning of the end for the relationship. She decided to leave the band and Prince. They were both really sad, and she would later tell Billboard magazine it was the hardest breakup that she ever had because she wasn't only losing her man, but she was losing her best friend. What Sheila E. didn't know at the time was during the whole time they were together, Prince was cheating on her with Wendy's twin sister, Susanna. Prince definitely had a secretive side to him, and although he was a superstar, emotionally he was an insecure man. After the breakup with Sheila E., Prince's romantic life became a revolving door of several leading ladies. From actress Kim Basinger in 1989 to dating Madonna briefly. He even helped Madonna produce her 1989 album, Like a Prayer. Prince then moved on to aspiring actress and singer Carmen Electra and helped launch her career in the early 1990s. Although their relationship was a little strange, she later commented in an interview about how Prince made her sleep in full makeup every night because he loved the fact that she looked like Sleeping Beauty when she slept. However, Maite Garcia, his young backup singer, was the first woman to truly capture his heart completely and get Prince to walk down the aisle. In 1990, a 16-year-old Maite met Prince backstage after he saw a tape of her belly dancing sent by her parents. According to Maite, she soon moved into his Paisley Park home and he became her guardian. After graduating from high school, she joined the new power generation. The couple started dating once she turned 18 and Prince was 34. Maite would later reveal in an interview she was a virgin when she met him and he was her first love. Prince fell deeply in love with her, too, and loved the fact that he was the only man Maite had ever been with. He based his entire love symbol album around her and wrote the song The Most Beautiful Girl in the World just for her. Four years after the couple started dating, Prince asked Maite to be his wife, and they would enter into what she later called in her memoir a very bizarre marriage. After they married in 1996, Maite got pregnant almost instantly. Unfortunately, their son passed away just one week after he was born due to a rare birth defect called Pfeiffer syndrome, which is a defect of the skull. Soon after that, she became pregnant again and had a miscarriage. The pain of losing two children was too much to bear, and eventually it tore their marriage apart and Prince and Maite divorced in 2000. Prince quickly moved on to his second wife, Manuela Testolini, who was a consultant for his charity, Love for One Another. But there's speculation on how the couple really met, and some say Manuela was once an obsessive Canadian fan who met Prince before he actually divorced Maite. After his relationship ended with his first wife, Manuela moved from Toronto to be with Prince. And they got married on Christmas in 2001, when she was 25 and he was 43. 
Some believe Prince married Manuela on the rebound due to the incredible heartbreak he felt over losing his son and wife Maite, who was now dating Tommy Lee, and then afterwards was the crushing loss of his father in August 2001. Later in 2002, Prince's mother would die just two months after his wedding. Emotionally, it was a very rough period for Prince. The couple's divorce papers paint a rocky relationship between Prince and Manuela, and many of his friends and family accused her of being a gold digger. The documents revealed that they lived an extravagant lifestyle, with each of them having their own personal assistant. While they were married, Manuela said she and Prince threw big parties after major awards shows like the Golden Globes, Oscars, and Grammys. For the events, Manuela would hire a $5,000 a day stylist to do her hair and makeup. The couple would spend $50,000 per party, the divorce records showed. In 2004 alone, Prince earned $42 million. What the papers failed to state was why the couple divorced. What we do know is that the marriage came to an abrupt end, and it must have been epic to upset Prince so deeply. The Star Tribune revealed that in May 2005, Prince locked Manuela out of their marital home in Chanhassen, Minnesota. He also cut off her credit cards, boxed up her stuff, and stored it in a vault in Paisley Park for safekeeping. Prince then immediately tore down the house they once lived in. Eventually, she was awarded a house in Toronto, worth approximately $6 million in the settlement, and a Lexus. During their split, Manuela initially received $10,000 a month in support. Prince also transferred $3 million to her personal account. However, the divorce proceedings soon took a dark turn when Manuela got greedy, and she claimed she needed $42,754 a month in spousal support, which she said amounted to no more than 2% of Prince's monthly earnings, because she needed to maintain a lifestyle that included attending the awards shows and hosting parties afterwards. Prince clapped back, stating, This is my normal life. And by filing her divorce petition, she severed her access to his personal lifestyle. That their life together was not a marital standard of living that could be recreated with any money. The couple's divorce was granted in October 2007. Later, Manuela would go on to marry Eric Benet in 2011. He's the former husband of Halle Berry, who he had cheated on several times, claiming he was a sex addict. In the end, Prince's romantic fears became true, and all the women he loved did eventually leave. In 1992, Prince and the New Power Generation released the Love Symbol album, and it featured a mystical song written by His Purple Majesty about the divine number seven. The singer had a lifelong fascination with the sacred number partly because he was born on June 7th and would later go on to write his first song at the age of seven. Just like many religious scholars, astrologers, and mathematicians, he believed that the number seven was associated with God and all things spiritual. Prince came into this world as an old soul with the life path number nine, both numbers, seven and nine, would follow Prince throughout its significant periods in his life, 
to his final moment in death when he was found alone and unresponsive in an elevator at his Paisley Park studio on April 21st, 2016. What's most significant about the date he died? It equal to the number seven. However, we must take a step back in time to seven days earlier in Atlanta, Georgia, where Prince would play his final concert to investigate what caused the singer's untimely death. On the night of April 14th, Prince performed two concerts at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, a week after postponing the shows due to having the flu. On stage that evening, his purple piano stood bathed in light. Behind it was a beautiful piece of artwork of Prince with a third eye, symbolizing his state of enlightenment and spiritual wisdom. According to Atlanta Journal's concert review, Prince shared a personal story with fans about how his father taught him to play piano. During the show, he left the stage a few times, at one point saying to the crowd, sometimes I forget how emotional these songs are. He sang an intimate rendition of his hit song, Nothing Compares to You, and changed the lyrics of I Would Die For You, from I'm Your Messiah and You're The Reason Why, to He's The Messiah and He's The Reason Why. During the song Controversy, Prince recited the Lord's Prayer and told the audience how much he loved God. At the end of the show, for his final encore, he would give an electrifying performance of Purple Rain. Little did fans know that only seven days later, he would be dead. It was reported the following day, Dr. Schulenberg, a family care physician, who worked at a clinic a few miles from the singer's home, had written a prescription for opioids in the name of Prince's friend, Kirk Johnson. His intention was that the drugs would go to the singer, and this is where the story gets even more twisted. According to Star Tribune, later that evening, Prince would fall ill on a flight home from Atlanta and was found unconscious. The aircraft made an emergency landing in Moline, Illinois, and everyone on board feared he was dead. Longtime friend Kirk Johnson couldn't wake him, unaware at the moment that Prince had overdosed on opioids. Johnson scooped up his boss and rushed him down the airplane steps, cradling him like a baby, paramedics said. They gave him a shot of Narcan, an opioid antidote, but were shocked when it didn't revive him. So they stuck him again. Prince gasped and woke. As responders asked questions, a stoic Johnson spoke on behalf of Prince, giving short, terse responses. Prince feels fine, he said. All Prince said was that he felt fuzzy. He refused more treatment and a blood test because he didn't want people to know that he was addicted to prescription medications. On Saturday, April 16th, Prince hosted a dance party at Paisley Park, showing up two hours late. He later told fans that evening, wait a few days before you waste any prayers. On April 18th, Prince was spotted by a fan riding his bike around Paisley Park, the picture of happiness. Smiling as he cruised around the neighborhood, the fan said he rode for at least an hour and showed no sign of fatigue. On April 20th, Prince's representatives called Howard Kornfeld, a Marin, California specialist in addiction medicine and pain management, seeking medical treatment for Prince. 
Kornfeld was scheduled to meet with Prince on April 22nd, and he had contacted a local physician who cleared his schedule for a physical examination on April 21st. Prince was last pictured the night before he died, leaving a Walgreens near his home around 7 p.m. It was the fourth time the singer had been to the pharmacy that week. An hour later, Prince headed back to his Paisley Park estate to retire for the evening. Sadly, just 13 hours later, he would be discovered alone and unconscious in an elevator by his friend Kirk Johnson and his personal assistant. On April 21st, at 9.43 a.m., which eerily equals to the number seven, the Carver County Sheriff's Office received a 911 call requesting that an ambulance be sent to Prince's home at Paisley Park. The caller initially told the dispatcher that an unidentified person at the home was unconscious. Then moments later said he was dead and finally identified the person as Prince. The caller was Kornfeld's son, who had flown in that morning to devise a treatment plan for Prince's opioid addiction. Paramedics arrived shortly after the 911 call and performed CPR, but were unable to revive Prince. The 57-year-old singer was pronounced dead at 10.07 a.m. Officials later stated that they believed Prince was likely dead for approximately seven hours before his lifeless body was found. What's even more chilling, the autopsy report would reveal that Prince died of an accidental overdose of fentanyl, a synthetic opioid 50 times more powerful than heroin. But Carver County attorney Mark Metz would later state that Prince thought he was taking a common painkiller, Vicodin, but instead was taking counterfeit Vicodin laced with fentanyl. Leaving friends and family, searching for answers, and determined to find out who was responsible for giving Prince the fatal dose that would later kill him. In 2001, after two years of thoughtful consideration, Prince became a Jehovah's Witness. In an interview with The New Yorker, he said, I don't really see it as a conversion. More, you know, it's a realization. It's like Morpheus and Neo in The Matrix. After Prince's religious awakening, he continued to be a spiritual soul seeker. And from that point on until his death, he made the study of scripture a lifelong endeavor. He was a member of the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, and often engaged regularly in door-to-door ministry. His religion believes that death is not just the death of the physical body, but also the death of the soul. When a person dies, they cease to exist, and death is the opposite of life. The dead do not see or think, nor do they possess an immortal soul or spirit. According to Prince's faith, the funeral was required to take place within a week of his passing. One day after his death, his body was cremated at the First Memorial Western Chapel in Minnesota and witnessed by his sister Tyka, her son Prez, as he took his final journey to the afterlife. Prince had a very precise idea on how he wanted his death to be handled and had special instructions requesting a simple service. He believed his life and memory would continue to be honored on a daily basis through his words and music.
The private service was held on Saturday, April 23rd in 2017 at his Paisley Park estate in Minnesota. A sea of purple marked the occasion, and mourners wore Prince's favorite color to pay their final respects. His life was celebrated by a small group of family, friends, and musicians in a beautiful ceremony. The mourners included siblings Tyka Nelson, close friends such as Damaris Lewis, his former lover Sheila E., band member Hannah Welton and her husband Josh Welton, and his two former ex-wives. The funeral program featured a quote from Prince himself who said, If I ever were to write down my life story, I could truly say with all the fame and glory, I was just a piece of clay in need of the potter's hand. Sly and the Family Stone bassist Larry Graham, who is credited with introducing Prince to the Jehovah's Witness faith, spoke about his friend and fellow musician at the service. Prince found great peace and fulfillment in his relationship with Jehovah God, the program said. He also found great satisfaction in sharing the things he learned from the Bible with others. He did this faithfully up until his death on April 21st, 2016. Prince drummer and former girlfriend Sheila E., who was among the small group of mourners in attendance, said of the service, It was very somber, quiet. We played his music quietly in the background. But it was hard. A lot of crying, a lot of grieving. We were all holding each other up. After the funeral, Paisley Park staff handed out over 300 purple boxes filled with Prince souvenirs to fans who waited outside Paisley Park to pay their final respects. After the service, Prince's ashes were placed in a custom 3D printed urn shaped like the Paisley Park estate. The urn is now on display in the atrium of the Paisley Park complex since October 2016. After his death, Prince's sister Taika, in an interview with People magazine, said that she felt he knew he was going to die soon. A few years before his death, he told his sister, I think I've done everything I've come to do. Taika said her dad and Prince always spoke in these types of riddles, and he was preparing her to go on in life without him. Taika went on to say he needed to go. Prince said he was tired, and instead of crying, he told her to dance. He didn't like to see his sister cry, and he didn't want his fans to cry either. One of his friends, Owen Husney, Prince's first manager from 1976 to 1980, would tell Variety magazine that in April, a few days before his death, he knew something wasn't right with Prince. Husney became even more concerned when it was announced that Prince was working on a memoir scheduled to be published in 2017. He also heard that the singer was looking into setting up his Paisley Park estate so that it could be a public Graceland-like visitor's attraction. This is not something you do while you're still living, said Husney. Did Prince have a foreboding that the end was near and wanted to get his affairs in order? After his death, investigators searched for clues 
on who may have been Prince's drug supplier. The Daily Mail reported the footage inside his estate revealed a home that celebrated the singer's achievements, yet strangely lacked any warm personal touches, like photos of family and friends, and appeared to be a lonely bachelor pad. Sadly, the investigation revealed Prince's sad isolation that fueled his drug addiction with pill bottles in the name of his friend Kirk Johnson, which was found scattered throughout his mansion, along with a vault full of files, drugs, and cash. In the weeks before Prince's death, his friend Kirk Johnson arranged for the singer to meet Dr. Schulenberg twice, according to search warrant documents. It stated the doctor had prescribed Prince medication and revealed that he was showing acute signs of opiate withdrawal symptoms. Text messages between Kirk Johnson and Dr. Schulenberg would show they were trying to get Prince help in the days leading up to his death. Johnson asked the doctor to send medical records to Howard Kornfeld, the addiction specialist in Marin, who sent his son to Minnesota to meet with Prince on the day he was found dead. However, the Walgreens video obtained by investigators shows Kirk Johnson picking up several prescriptions intended for Prince the night before he died, which makes one ask, if you're truly trying to help the singer get sober, why did Kirk continue to enable Prince's drug addiction by getting prescriptions filled in his name to give to him? Those questions and concerns would later be addressed in a lawsuit filed by Prince's family against Dr. Schulenberg and would be settled for a mere $30,000. In the aftermath of Prince's death, more than 45 people came forward, claiming to be his wife, child, sibling, or other relative. One even included a Colorado inmate who claimed to be his son, but a DNA test ruled it out. In May 2017, a judge ruled that the $200 million estate would be given to his sister, Tyka Nelson, and his five half-siblings, Sharon Nelson, Noreen Nelson, John R. Nelson, Omar Baker, and Alfred Jackson. But two years later, his heirs have yet to receive any money from his estate, while the lawyers work out tax and legal issues. His estate announced in December 2018 that the Sony Legacy reissues will begin in February 2019. The first three releases are to be Musicology 3121 and Planet Earth on the limited edition, purple vinyl, and standard CD formats. Also, there is rumored to be a Prince memoir in the mix that is expected to be released sometime in 2019. It will include his handwritten journals, and it will be filled with photos and memorabilia of the singer. When Prince died on April 21, 2016, fans from around the world mourned the loss of the charismatic singer. In celebration of his life, the whole world coloured itself purple. Within hours of his death, tributes poured in with bridges, buildings and monuments lit in purple from Niagara Falls to the Eiffel Tower in Paris to honour the memory of Prince. During his lifetime, a spiritual theme was a constant presence in his music. Prince believed a strong spirit would transcend rules, and he made up his own along the way. He created a cosmology and a spiritual outlook that made sense to him. His work and his creative life was proof of God, and God working through him. Prince once said, despite everything, no one can dictate who you are to other people. 
people will always have their opinions. Only you know who you really are. Focus on living authentically and honestly. Have integrity in all that you do. And those opinions won't matter. Words to live by. Prince. Gone. But never forgotten. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>